0: Hi, this is Ben Lowell, and this is Back to the Bible Canada with Dr. John Newfeld. Today we're going to be continuing in our series, Abraham, Father of All Who Believe, with a message entitled, The God of Covenant. So let's turn in our Bibles to Genesis chapter 15, verses 7 to 20, as we join Dr. Newfeld now.
1: I've often contemplated the phrase, Doubting Thomas. Now, if you don't know what that refers to, let me explain. Immediately after the resurrection of Jesus and after Jesus had appeared to the disciples, Thomas, one of Christ's remaining disciples, had not been there. And as others are describing their encounter with the risen Jesus, Thomas is expressing his doubts. He says, "...unless I see in his hands the mark of the nails and place my finger into the mark of the nails and place my hand into his side, I will never believe." Now, that statement, as recorded in John 20, has earned Thomas the name Doubting Thomas. And depending on your vantage point, you might think that Thomas' statement is a very negative one. I mean, after all, Jesus does say, blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. Now, the real question, at least this is how it seems to me, is what we mean by doubt. Is it positive or is it negative? And here's what I mean. I know of some who will never have enough evidence. They're what I call habitual doubters. I mean, for them, doubting is a badge of honor, an indication that they're not among the gullible. They are, if you will, addicted to their own doubting. They'll never believe and love to spend their time mocking those who do. Doubting makes them feel superior. So is that negative? Well, yeah, it is. That kind of doubting, what I call habitual doubting, has absolutely nothing to do with the truth and everything in the world to do with this narcissistic need to feel superior. Another kind of doubting is what I call fear-driven doubting. It's the person who says, what if everything I believe isn't true? Now, these kinds of person have no way of examining their doubts or of settling them. Rather, they're the people who are consumed by emotions and fears and anxiety that comes from believing that the worst might be upon them. I I call that fear-driven doubting. You know, a third kind of doubting is what I call philosophical doubting. By this, I'm speaking about people who have a philosophy that simply will not consider any evidence that disagrees with what they already believe. I mean, consider the person who's a naturalist who argues that miracles can't happen because nature and cause and effect natural events are all that can happen. So, when confronted with the resurrection of Jesus, they simply will not believe, not because there's a lack of evidence, but because they're programmed not to believe before the evidence is even presented. So, we've got the habitual doubter and the fear-driven doubter and the philosophical doubter. And in all these cases, I mean, doubting is always, therefore, negative. But getting back to doubting Thomas, I, I actually don't think that any one of those descriptions actually describes him. I think that Thomas is another kind of doubter. He's what I call the hopeful doubter. If he's given enough evidence, he will believe, but he won't believe without the evidence. Now, I might argue that the testimony of the 10 other disciples, men whom he knew to be reliable men, should have been convincing to him. But, you know, one thing remains. When confronted with enough evidence, Thomas believes. Now, why am I saying these things? Because we've been studying Genesis 15, verse 6, and there we've read, Abram believed the Lord, and the Lord counted it to him as righteousness. But as we will see today, in just a little while, two verses later, that is in verse 8, Abram will say, how am I to know that I shall possess the land? Now, I'm sure that Abram, the father of those who have faith, is not the only one who's ever spoken that way. Now, look, Abram's not denying what he said earlier. He believes truly and completely. If God has told him that his descendants will be as numerous as the stars of the sky, he believes, for he knows that God is trustworthy. But now God has also told him that after his death, his descendants will inherit the land. It's it's just that Abram needs something concrete, something that stands as a marker, ground upon which he can stand, that will always be a secure anchor point in the future. He needs something tangible that will bolster his faith. He needs something that's a material picture that will provide him with hope and confidence. And you and I do as well. You know, I'll come to our own tangible markers of faith in just a moment. But, but before I do, let's read today's passage. God has just spoken to Abraham to look into the heavens and number the stars. His offspring will be like that. And Abraham has said, I believe. Now I'm reading Genesis fifteen seven to 11. And he said to him, I am the Lord who brought you out from Ur of the Chaldeans to give you this land to possess. And he said, O Lord God, how do I know that I will possess it? And he said to him, bring me a heifer three years old, a female goat three years old, a ram three years old, a turtle dove, and a young pigeon. And he brought him all these and cut them in half and laid each half over against the other. But he did not cut the birds in half. And when the birds of prey came down on the carcasses, Abram drove them away. You know, it was evening, and it had been an amazing several hours. The day before had started with anxiety. Abram was plagued by fears that some of the kings that he had attacked would regroup and mount a counterattack. And in response, God told him that he would be a shield of defense, and Abram believed that. God was going to keep every promise he had made to Abram. But God's not through with him. He tells Abram that the reason he called him out of Ur some 20 or more years ago was to give him this very land he was living in. That was my purpose when you heard my voice in Ur, when you found out that I was the Lord, the the creator and the sustainer of the universe. I spoke to you because it was in my mind to give you this land and from this land to bring a great company of men and women to myself, and you would be the conduit of blessing to the world. Now, Abram was no doubt thinking about all that God had promised to him. I mean, descendants beyond number, this land, a blessing that would flow from here to the entire earth. It was, it was wild. It was outrageous. It was audacious. It was over the top. Look again at verse 8. But he said, "Oh Lord God, how am I to know that I shall possess it? Now, doesn't that sound like doubt? At the outset, it does sound like that. But remember, he's just told God that he believes him. Abram, I don't think, is doubting. He's expressing the need to be rooted in faith. Look, I'm convinced that verse 8 is not a doubting statement. In in verse 8, Abram says to God, Okay, I believe you, so put it in writing. Show me so that I always know and you'll forever banish my doubts. You know, years later, Moses would stand before God on Mount Sinai. and In a most remarkable prayer, he whispers his request before God. Show me your glory, he says. And this is what Abram is saying in verse 8. And instead of rebuking him, God responds by making a treaty with him, a covenant. It's a legal binding agreement, and he does it in a way in which everyone who lived in that area would have understood. First, Abram is to bring five sacrifices. He's to kill them and cut them in half and and with the parts make two heaps of animal carcasses. Now, what's this all about? Well, in Jeremiah 34, verses 18 to 20, we get an ancient insight into this practice. Here's, Here's what we read. It says, the men who have violated my covenant and have not fulfilled the terms of the covenant they made before me, I will treat like the calf they cut in two and then walk between its pieces. The leaders of Judah and Jerusalem, the court officials, the priests, and all the people of the land who walked between the pieces of the calf, I will hand over to their enemies who seek their lives. Their dead bodies will become food for the birds of the air and the beasts of the earth. And so you see, in effect... When two ancient peoples formed a legal binding agreement, often they would cut animals in half and walk between the pieces together saying something like this, may my body be cut in half like these animals if I fail to keep my word. Well, (laughs) that's quite a contract, wouldn't you say? I'd say there's little room in that contract for fine print. You either keep the word or you forfeit your life. So God says to Abram, let's cut a covenant in just the way that you might understand it. Uh, We might say today, let's ink the deal. But in the ancient world, it it was not ink that they were interested in. It was sacrifice. It it was blood. It was cutting. See, I could almost imagine Abram's amazement. He was about to make a treaty with God, a contract, a, a binding covenant. And so he went to work sacrificing and cutting. God was about to give Abram overwhelming evidence that it was so. Now, the two heaps lay there, but but what to do now? Was he supposed to walk between them in some form of symbolic act? I mean, no instruction is given, just prepare the contract and prepare the covenant. And so he does, and the dead cut animals lie on both sides. And I want us to imagine for a moment the drama that's being played out. The Most High God is going to give Abram, the man of faith, an image he will never forget. He will give Abram a signed contract that he will keep his word. My dear Christian friend, this is how God inspires faith, and we need to listen up because what will happen next is an image not just for Abraham, but it's an image that we need to remember today.
0: The definition of legacy, something that is passed on. But legacy can mean so much more. Your faith, core values, your character, or the life you lead. Maybe this is news to you, but Back to the Bible Canada partners with Advisors with Purpose to provide expert estate planning at no cost. Advisors with Purpose are estate planning specialists that can provide you with a peace of mind for your financial legacy. This is a third-party service, so Back to the Bible Canada is not involved in the planning or how you would steward your legacy. We simply hope to provide access to an opportunity to ensure you leave a legacy that will accurately represent your wishes for future generations and faithful stewardship of all God has entrusted to you. Our partnership with Advisors with Purpose makes this a free service. So if you're interested or would like more information, call Advisors with Purpose directly at 1-866-336-3315 and let them know you're a friend of Back to the Bible Canada or visit backtothebible.ca slash legacy.
1: Genesis 15 is one of the most dramatic chapters in the Bible. Now There are no wars, or no plagues, no parting of the Red Sea. No one is rising from the dead. But Genesis 15 finds one man, Abram, ready to enter into a formal binding agreement with God. God displays how he will extend his offer of forgiveness and grace to the entire human race. Abram has cut animals in half with a pathway between the cut corpses of the animals and the birds of prey are circling overhead, but Abram kept driving them away. He hadn't slept the night before because he had walked with God under the stars, but now as evening comes again, he's exhausted. He sensed something dreadful was about to happen and he closed his eyes into a dreaded sleep and then in an eerie night scene, so different than the night before, a scene which he felt like death itself had descended. Abram heard the voice of God. Let's read what happened next in verse 12. As the sun was going down, a deep sleep fell on Abram, and behold, dreadful and great darkness fell upon him. And so it is under these conditions that God prepares Abram for an external sign of a covenant. And there we find Abram and he waits. I'm reading Genesis 15, 13 to 16. Then the Lord said to Abram, "'Know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners in a land that is not theirs and will be servants there, and they will be afflicted for 400 years. But I will bring judgment on the nation that they serve, and afterward they will come out with great possessions. As for yourself, you shall go to your fathers in peace, you shall be buried in a good old age, and they shall come back here in the fourth generation, for the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete.'" Please notice that not only is God speaking— But that God is promising, and the fulfillment of these promises surrounded a time after Abram's death. And God gives the reason. God does not drive people out of the land for no reason other than he has a greater plan for that land. He wasn't about to drive innocent people out of a land just to give it to Abram. There is a divine justice that's being played out here. Now, we know from history that exactly the time when Joshua drove the inhabitants out of the land, those inhabitants were a cruel, merciless, depraved culture that even sacrificed their children to demonic deities. There's no favoritism to Israel here, as they would find out themselves years later when God would send the Babylonians to drive them from the land. It turns out that God giving the land to Abram was about justice and about committing the land to the holiness of God. And so God tells Abram that there is a divine timetable. Indeed, nothing's left to chance. That Abram's offspring will be sojourners in another land, that they will be afflicted there, that this will last for 400 years, and that God will deliver them. All that's spelled out. God's plans seem to develop so slowly, but ever so forcefully, unstoppably moving forward. And as these truths are sinking into Abram, the absolutely amazing thing now happens. It's now completely dark. The sun is set, and as he watches... An oven of smoke and flaming fire passes between the pieces. Let's read the text, verses 17 to 20. When the sun had gone down and it was dark, behold, a smoking fire pot and a flaming torch passed between these pieces. On that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abram, saying, to your offspring I give this land, from the river of Egypt to the great river, the river Euphrates, the land of the Kenites, the Kenesites, the Cadmonites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Rephaim, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Gergeshites, and the Jebusites. You know, the symbol of the smoking firepot and the flaming torch symbolized the presence of the living God, much like what Moses would later encounter at Mount Sinai on a grander scale. The God of burning purity was doing the unimaginable. He was walking alone between the cut pieces of the animal carcasses. Now, Abram was not called upon to walk among the pieces. This is a unilateral covenant. God alone is making it and promising it to Abram. In effect, God was placing a curse on himself if he failed to keep his word. And as God walked between the sacrificed and cut animals, he irrevocably bound himself to Abram. This land, from the Nile River to the Euphrates, all this would be given to Abram's descendants. God would cease being God if this word failed. But, of course, God cannot cease being God, and therefore this word cannot fail. And as we leave Genesis 15, we're left to contemplate that God bound himself under his own oath that he must do exactly what he has said he would do. And when Abram asked God, how shall I know that you'll do this? Now there was the answer. This is how you know. I bound my glory and my eternal being to the covenant that I now cut with you. Now pause for a moment and ask, what does that mean for us? Well, on one hand, we do have the benefit of history. Israel was given the land because Joshua conquered it. It was on that land that God revealed his purposes, and it was on that land that the Son of God was slain for our sins and purchased for himself an offspring for Abraham, more than can be counted and numbered. Well, it seems pretty clear that when God binds himself to his covenant, the outcome is secure. But there's something else here. We might ask ourselves if there's any parallel for those who trust in Christ today. It is one thing for God to walk among cut pieces of an animal, announcing that He binds Himself to His Word. Is there something like this for us today? Well, 2,000 years ago, on the night when Jesus was betrayed and had been taken off to be crucified, He met in the upper room with His disciples. And that night, as they celebrated the Passover and the fulfillment of the promise made to Abram that God would bring them from a nation that had afflicted them for 400 years— Jesus took out the Passover bread and he held it up, and he did what God had done to Abram. He sealed his covenant with these words, This bread is my body, which is broken for you. And then with a cup, This cup is now the new covenant sealed in my blood. Drink this in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Have you ever struggled with doubt? I mean, you sometimes wonder whether God has committed himself to you by the blood of his Son. Now, if you do that, God is determined, just as he did with Abram, to give you an external sign that you must never forget. You know, the next time you attend the Lord's table and receive the bread and the cup, know that your Savior was cut and his body was broken, his blood was spilled, this is a sign for you. The table of communion is intended to be the most visible demonstration that God never breaks his word. Indeed, he has staked his reputation to that table. He has bound you to himself by the elements of the Lord's table. And the lesson, therefore, is quite impossible for us to miss. God has obligated himself to us in the promises that he has made, which are ultimately fulfilled in the cross. The two ordinances given to the church of Jesus Christ, both baptism and the Lord's table, are his visible symbols that his promises will not and cannot fail. Do you hear that? God has Obligated himself. I mean, listen to Colossians 1 19 to 20. For God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through his bloodshed on the cross. Hear me. If even one person who commits himself to trust in the cross cannot find peace with God, then God himself will have pronounced a curse on himself then the entire universe will cease to exist. God cannot curse himself. God can be trusted. He would never have promised us righteousness in the cross. He would never have cut a covenant in the blood of his son if he did not intend to keep it. And then how do we respond to this? Well, we do all that Abram did. We believe the Lord, for he has gone out of his way to present us with all the evidence that we're ever going to need that these things are exactly so. And should we ever wonder, how can I know that I will inherit the celestial city, the one that's not made with human hands, the one where sadness and mourning are forever banished? How do I know that the great judgment to come will not condemn me? And responds the next time that communion is shared. Remember God walking between the cut pieces or Jesus saying that this is his body and his blood. And remember, this is God's evidence for you that his word is forever fixed in the heavens. Do you doubt? Well, maybe you're a habitual doubter or maybe you're a fearful doubter or maybe you're even a philosophical doubter who simply will not allow the truth to keep you from doubting but perhaps today you're a hopeful doubter. And if you're like Thomas, now is the time to fall on your knees and to say with Thomas, my Lord and my God. Heavenly Father, I pray for anyone here today who has not known Christ as Savior and Lord or has never trusted their lives into the hands of Jesus, who has never believed that the cross was sufficient to cover all their sins. Heavenly Father, I pray today would be the day that they would say, I believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God, and therefore I surrender my life into your hands, and I believe that you will fulfill all of the promises on the cross in me. In Jesus' name. Amen.
0: John, thanks for your message today. I did want to clarify something. There's some strange language being used, so maybe you can help clarify some of that for us. It's this whole idea of God binding himself with the curse.
1: Yeah, it does sound that way, although, you know, when we understand what was being done that day, it does it seem that way. So let me, first of all, deal with the issue of God binding himself. I mean, God is free to do whatever God wants to do, all for his glory. And yet, in the covenant that he makes, he binds his own behavior— I I like to say it this way, if anyone who truly hopes in Christ fails to find salvation, then God's word will have failed, and then God himself will have failed to be God. God must save the sinner through Christ. If that sinner is not saved, God fails to be God. So that's what I mean by a covenant. God has bound his behavior to the promise that he has made in the covenant.
0: Thanks so much, John. Back to the Bible Canada, leading you forward in your walk with Jesus every day. Have you ever wanted to spend time in fellowship with Back to the Bible Canada's Dr. John Newfeld, Laugh Gaines Phil Calloway, or even the leadership team behind them? Well, this is your chance. We invite you to join us on a cruise from April 5th to the 14th of 2024. Kicking off in Miami, we'll sail through several stunning locations within the Caribbean. The beautiful scenery combined with the Bible teaching of Dr. John, spiritual encouragement of laugh Phil Callaway and feature musical guests is a recipe for the vacation of a lifetime. This is a time to be refreshed on so many levels. So for more information, to download the itinerary, visit backtothebible.ca. Call us at 1-800-663-2425. And please note that with all ministry travel events, no ministry funds are spent. All related costs are covered by participants.